So, as you can see in the, in the bulletin, there are a lot of announcements. Ooh, Rachel, that's loud. <laughs> I'm kind of loud anyway, so. But if you'll go through those this week, there's several things going on. Um, just read those. There is a special announcement about the Women's Fellowship and the Baby Bottle Boomerang Campaign. Paige, did you want to say something about that? Jessica, you have a couple announcements? Yes, so the Women's Fellowship is meeting tomorrow at 7 in Fellowship Hall. We're doing potluck, so bring um, a dish with you. I'm going to do broccoli salad. Um, and then back in the north at, on the table where the bulletins and communion uh, is, in the yellow directory, slash directory, I have opened it to where the names are, addresses, and all that. Please go and if you need to change anything, add anything. Someone new that would like their name to be in there, just add, add yeah. it in there. You can add it to the very back. There's a little section that's going, you can write it in and, and we'll, I'll add it. Okay, at the bottom, too, I want to mention this because this is kind of important. Some folks, anyone needing their uh, tithing report for 2022, please see Pat Harwood and she can get that information for you. Are there any other announcements? open our service with our scripture reading this morning from Psalms 2. The reign of the Lord's anointed. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs the Lord holds them in this direction. He, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the endings of the earth your possession. 
You shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now if you'll all stand, we'll open with hymn number 148.
Today we are in the book of, do you remember? It starts with an R. Romans, yes. And we're in chapter 5. And I am going to read the end of verse 5. It says this. The temple, yeah. So, so God promised the Israelites He would dwell with them in the temple. But now, after Jesus came, Jesus died and rose again from the dead. And then, after Jesus rose from the dead, He sent the Holy Spirit to be with His people everywhere, all over the world, to us, so that whoever believes that Jesus. Is Lord and Savior which has the Holy Spirit lives in him. So now God doesn't just live in the temple, he doesn't his presence he doesn't just stay in one place. With his people, everywhere his people is, his people are, is where he is. By the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Right? And so that is something that we're going to learn about today in Romans 5. And that is a sign. Having the Holy Spirit is a sign of God's love for His people. And the Spirit reminds us that God loves us, even when we have a hard time believing it to be. 
that same teaching in God's word. So let's pray. Dear God, thank you for today. Thank you for gathering together as a church that we can worship you and learn more about you and learn about the Holy Spirit living in our hearts and how that is a sign of your love for your people. Open our hearts and minds to you today. In Jesus' name we pray. There are any children who need nursery today. I will be in the nursery after the choir's anthem. So we're going to stand now and sing our hymn 147. Six. 146. Glorify thy name.
you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans. This morning we are continuing through our, this study that we began back in July, just uh, slowly making our way through this uh, gospel treatise and, and discovering all that, that Paul has written to this church in Rome that he had never been to uh, before writing this letter. This morning we are going into looking at Romans chapter 5, which we began last Sunday, and, and we will be looking this morning at verses 3, 4, and 5. But while that will be our focus, I want to read for us as we begin this entire, these first 11 verses of chapter 5, because they are one unit and go together, even though we will be zeroing in on this few. So look with me, Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Grass withered, flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Pray with you. Father, we come to you this morning in need of in need of a lot. But in this particular moment, Father, we need your spirit. We need you to open our eyes to your word, that we may hear it, that may we that we may receive it, we may believe it. For none of these things are possible. Throughout our, our study of Romans, we have been looking at, we spent a lot of time talking really about faith. Um, and this, that we are, are justified by faith, that we are saved by faith, that faith is central to everything that we are and everything that we believe. The faith, and faith alone is how we are saved. But there's a, an issue that I think that I, I'm wondering how many of us are, are willing to admit this issue is there. Because how many of us would be willing to raise our hand or, or stand up in front of the church and say, 
I struggle with faith. I, I, I believe that, that Jesus died and he rose again for my sins. I, I believe that, that, that he is with me, that, he has never, that he's promised to never leave me. And so I believe these things are true. But there are days when my faith just seems small and weak and broken. There are days of doubt and days of fear and days of anxiety. And in those days, what does that mean about my faith? Or more importantly, what does that mean about my salvation? My justification. Because if we hold to this idea that Paul has given to us in Scripture, that we are justified by faith alone, what happens when my faith is weak? What happens when my faith fails? Because if my faith fails even once, am I still justified? I think each of us wants to to not only have faith, but to be certain that our faith is strong enough. That it's strong enough to stand against the final judgment of God. And that in that day, when God looks at our faith, He says, He will say to us, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have believed. I think what we are really in need of in these questions, as, as through these days of struggle, what, what our faith needs, what we, as, a, as the people of God, need, is assurance. We need certainty. We need the assurance of salvation. So the question that we that I find myself asking and dealing with on, on a somewhat regular basis is how can we be sure that if justification is by faith alone, how can we be sure that our faith will save us in the end? So this morning, I think as we, we read through this passage in Romans 5, and looking specifically at verses 3, 4, and 5, I believe that this is the issue, the, the, the issue that Paul is trying to tackle, is this issue of assurance. He spent three, four chapters now trying to convince us that you have to be justified by faith, and so now he wants you to see how you can know if your faith is enough, how you can have this assurance of salvation. Because in reality, there are two major obstacles to this assurance. And the first obstacle is the authenticity of my faith. How can I know that my faith is genuine? How can I know that my faith is real? And not something that I inherited from mom or grandma. And the second obstacle is the reality of God's love. These are the two biggest obstacles to any sort of assurance that we may or may not have to our faith and to our salvation. The authenticity of my faith and the reality of God's love. Does God really love me like he says he does? This morning, I want to spend most of our time on this first obstacle, this authenticity of my faith. We'll touch on the second one, but next week, if we look at verses 6, 7, and 8, we will see Paul's handling of this reality of God's love a little bit uh, clearer. And so we'll touch on that this morning, but we'll come back more to that fully next week. So I hope you'll join us for that. But this morning, as we look at these verses, verse 3, 4, and 5, I want you to see three commands for your life, three commands from these verses that help you to receive the assurance that we so desperately crave. Command number one, rejoice in suffering. Rejoice in suffering, and here's why. It is the fire that tempers your faith. 
Rejoice in suffering, for it is the fire that tempers your faith. Last week, as we were looking at verse 2, we talked about how we live in this already not yet world and how that can be frustrating. And at the same time, we, we have this, this hope because we know as Christians that, that the not yet will one day come. That we live in this, this back and forth age where Christ has already saved us, but he has not yet fully redeemed us. That we are freed from sin and the bondage of death, and yet we still will suffer and will die. And so this already not yet world that we live in is frustrating, as we talked about last week. But it's the not yet that we saw in verse 2, this hope of the glory of God that drives us forward, that our eyes gaze forward to the day that Christ will return, and he will bring the not yet into today. Then we hit verse 3. In verse 3, here Paul takes a sharp turn away from the future hope, away from the not yet, and brings it back, brings our focus back to our present. Look there at verse 3. This is what he says. He says, not only that, not only that, not only do we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, but we rejoice in our suffering. The same word, rejoice, the same word that we saw in, in verse 2, this same meaning of being joyfully confident. Except this time Paul says that we should be joyfully confident in regard to our sufferings. And I think before we can really jump into this command to rejoice in sufferings, we need to understand what sufferings are. To consider what Paul means when he uses this word. And I think that we have to understand first that suffering is nothing new to Christianity. Jesus suffered. His disciples suffered. Only one of the twelve disciples lived to see an old age and died of old age. The other 11 died in brutal, torturous means. Acts tells the story of Christians being hunted down. Men like Paul and Timothy and Barnabas and Silas being followed from town to town and being brutally attacked over and over again. And it certainly didn't end when Acts ended. You know, as Christianity grew, we we learned from history that the Roman government attempted to shut down this so-called new religion. And that they're Their point of attack was that if we mercilessly slaughter enough Christians, then the Christians that are left alive will eventually stop being Christians. And so they did. They hunted down Christians as uh, the government, the world government, essentially hunted down Christians, even putting them in the Colosseum where crowds upon crowds cheered as Christians were tied to posts and mauled by bears or eaten by wild dogs and lions. All in the name of stopping this new religion. And if you think that it was just a a, a back then issue, let me just correct that thought for you. Every day, today, every day 13 Christians worldwide are killed because of their faith. Every day, today, 12 churches or Christian buildings will be attacked, vandalized, or destroyed. Every day, today. Twelve Christians are unjustly arrested or imprisoned, and another five are abducted, just because they're Christians. There's an organization called the World Watch List, and this organization uh, creates an account of of a listing of where around the world are the highest levels of persecution for Christians. And across 76 countries, this this is for the year of 2022, across 76 countries, More than 360 million Christians 
suffer high levels of persecution and discrimination for their faith, which comes to be one in every seven Christians live with some with extreme level of persecution because they are Christians. One in seven. But this level of, of physical persecution is, is not all that Paul means when he uses this word suffering. It also includes sickness, weakness, emotional stress, broken or strained relationships, hardships, disappointments, disasters, verbal assaults, even inconveniences like traffic jams and busted pipes and rebellious children. Piper, John Piper defined it and said that suffering or tribulation or affliction, as Paul uses it here, it is anything in your life that makes your life harder and at the same time threatens your faith in the goodness and power and wisdom of God. Anything in your life that makes things harder and at the same time threatens your faith in the goodness and the power and the wisdom of God. Anything that says that comes into your life and makes you even for a moment think, is God still good? Is He still powerful? Is He still wise? That's suffering. And so it's with this understanding of suffering we can then consider what Paul says that we should do with it. He says we should rejoice in this. Which, if we're honest, we'll probably find doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Why in the world should we celebrate something that happens in our lives that causes us to doubt the goodness of God? But I guess we're not too good at this, are we? I think we fall more in line with the grumblers and complainers than the rejoicers. I mean, let's be real here, people. If I believe God and I try my best to live how God wants me to live, shouldn't that mean my life gets better, not worse? Shouldn't it be that the path of faith is the path to less suffering and not more suffering? Wouldn't suffering be a sign that I'm doing something wrong? And I think that we are, if any of us have felt this way, that we are not alone in that. In fact, so much of the early church felt this way, particularly the, the Jews who had placed their faith in the Messiah and trusted Jesus and became Christians. And so when the Roman government ramped up their persecution of Christians, many in the church felt that they had made a mistake. That God has turned his back on us. That we have abandoned our, the, what God had called us to be and do. And this, this feeling was so common that the men who wrote the New Testament, most of the New Testament letters, Paul, Peter, James, and John, they all wrote to churches encouraging them in the midst of persecution, in the midst of suffering. Telling them the same message that Paul writes here in Romans 5. Rejoice in suffering. Why? Because as Paul teaches the church in Acts chapter 14, it is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. Tribulation, suffering, affliction, whatever word you want to put on it. This is the doorway that we enter the kingdom of God as Christians. It is through these. Not around these, and not under these, and not over these. It is through times of suffering that we enter God's kingdom. So before we go on then, let me ask you this. When suffering comes, 
whatever shape or form it may take, whether it's sickness or heartbreak or broken relationships, or if you ever happen to find yourself in a place in our world where physical persecution is a daily reality, when suffering comes, are you more likely to rejoice or complain? If you're like me, then complaining has become a second language to you. And I think Paul's words need to sink deep into our hearts this morning. Rejoice in sufferings. Let me tell you why. Because suffering is the fire that tempers your faith. Steel is is one of the strongest metals that that we have in our world. It is long-lasting. It bears up under tremendous pressure and heat. It is the foundation for so many of our tallest and greatest buildings around the world. But in order to get steel, in order to get this metal to its strongest possible point, it is first tempered. Which means that the tempering, in order to strengthen steel, we have to, to heat it to just below the point where it melts. Which is about 2,500 degrees Fahrenheit. And upon reaching this level of heat, just almost to the breaking point, almost to the melting point, but not quite there, it is then rapidly cooled. And the metal, the, the physical properties of this metal are improved to the point where it is, it is practically unbreakable after this. And this is what suffering does to our faith. It tempers it. It heats it up to the point just below melting point. Just below that point where it's going to break and snap and, and fall apart and lose any sort of structure just beneath that line. And then immediately cools. And, and after this heating and after this cooling, during this time of struggle. It is common for questions of doubt to spring up. It is common for anxieties to rise, and yet the suffering ends, and the fire is taken away, and things cool off. And you're left with a faith that is stronger, is more resilient, is tested, proven. Suffering in our world, from our perspective, suffering can seem like an overthrow of gospel blessings. Where all the things that God has promised to give us in Christ have been thrown out the window. And yet, instead, Paul teaches, the scriptures teach us that sufferings are not an overthrow of gospel blessings. But it is something through which God tests and strengthens faith. But, you don't have to take my word for it. This tempering of faith is not my process. And honestly, if it were up to me, this is not the process that I would choose to strengthen my faith. But it's God's. This is how God has designed it. This is his, his process. And this process has a divine purpose that results in assurance of salvation. So first, Paul says for you to rejoice in sufferings because it is the fire that tempers your faith. Second, he, he wants us to trust God's process. Trust God's process. For this is the way that faith is proved authentic. This is the way that faith is proved authentic. You see, we're not called to rejoice in suffering without knowing why. Paul tells us why to rejoice. Look with me at verse uh, 4. Verse 3 and 4, excuse me. He says, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing, this is what we know, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. This is why we are called to rejoice. So let's just break it down phrase by phrase. First, 
Suffering produces endurance. Endurance, or maybe maybe the translation of scripture that you have says perseverance. But endurance is one of those things. It's something that everyone wants to have, but no one wants to go through what it takes to build it. Everyone wants to be able to endure. But in, able to, in order to endure, you have to go through a painful process of endurance. You know, for, for much of my life, running has been a, a major part of, it's just been a major outlet for me. It started as a, as a means to an end. I played soccer in high school and during the offseason, wanted to improve my physical fitness, so I joined the cross-country team. And, and by the end of that first season, I had, had caught the bug, as they said. That running became this, there was a fire, there was a passion to just go out and run. And there's just something about it. Just going out and just running without ending, without stopping, multiple miles at a time. There is a, there is a head-clearing, stress-relieving endorphin-producing process that is just, there's nothing like it. It gives me time free from distraction and free from worry. And and if I'm honest, time is a father. Running is is a a spiritual time in addition to physical and emotional benefit. But the thing about running is that you don't just get up one day and decide to go and run five or ten miles on a limb. There's a process. It takes time to, to build up your body to be able to do this. That your muscles have to learn how to continue beyond what they're capable of. That they have to stretch and then break down and then rebuild. That your lungs have to build capacity to handle the stress of running. Your heart even has to learn how to slow down. In fact, it is your heart rate that is the major determining factor on your level of endurance. How fast or how slowly your heart beats when you're running determines how fast or how slowly it will be when it's stressed. And all of this, in order to build up endurance, it takes time. And more than that, it takes time under pressure to build endurance. Suffering does just that. Through suffering, our faith is stretched and torn down and rebuilt so that it can withstand future, more intense sufferings. And that suffering intensifies as As the distance that we are capable of running lengthens, our faith, like our muscles and our breathing and our heart rate, improves and strengthens, building this level of endurance through suffering. Suffering produces endurance. Then Paul says endurance produces character. If suffering produces endurance, building and strengthening faith through struggle, then, then through endurance, something else comes. The ESV that I have here in front of me simply writes it as character, but other translations have it as proven character. And it's that word proven that I think really sets this apart and really shows what Paul is saying. I don't know if you're like this or not, but I am a person who second guesses things. Uh, And I think that a lot of people in my life second guess things. That we test things to see if they're real or not. Before jumping in, we, we have authenticity tests, tests for precious metals and stones like diamonds. We, we, and frankly, we have these tests because it's hard to tell the real apart from the fake. Fool's gold looks a lot like real gold in a lot of lighting. But there's certain tests that you can do to test whether or not it is real. 
In sports, if a team performs unexpectedly well, it's easier for, for me or for us as a culture to call that a fluke than to say they're the real deal. If someone gives you really good news, we tend to want proof of some kind before we're ready to jump into it full. We are people of second guessers. We want it proven before we believe. And I think faith is, is no different. We want it proven. We want some sort of concrete evidence that we can hold to and say, yes, this is enough. I've got it. I remember when I, when I first became a Christian, I was eight or, or nine years old. I was alone. And I realized that, that I, I wanted to, to be a Christian. I wanted to believe him. And so I, I wanted to live for Jesus and believe him. So I did what I was taught to do, and I, I prayed the sinner's prayer. And in looking back on that moment now, I'm honestly not sure what I expected to happen. But I do know that I expected more to happen than did. Because I, I closed my eyes and I prayed the prayer and opened them, waiting for the hallelujah chorus to be singing from the heavens and the bright light to shine down from the sky. None of that happened. And so being an eight or nine-year-old little boy, I thought, maybe I said it wrong. Said it again. And nothing happened, and so I said it again and again and again, waiting on something to change and something to take place. And yet nothing did. And I can remember it being years of just saying to myself and, and saying to others that yes, I believed, and, and yes, I believed the gospel, and at the same time, deep within me, wondering to myself. How, how can I be certain that I actually do believe this? How can I know that, that I've been saved? And it wasn't until about ten years after this that I finally reached a point where I knew that I believed. And it was in that moment, when you, you know, how, how do you go ten years without knowing and reaching a point finally where you say, yep, this is it. I know now. And it was through this process, with these ten years, where it was enduring a, a lot of small trials along the way. But my senior year of high school, I hit big one. And I mean, looking back now, I, I, can, I can laugh and say, yeah, that was big. I mean, at the time, it was, it was big. There was a time of suffering and struggle where, where everything that I had built my world around came crashing down. And I was left holding pieces, wondering where to go. And in the middle of that, I can honestly say, well, I don't know a lot, but I do know this. That Jesus loved me, and that he died for me, and that he rose again. And in, in the midst of all this chaos, in the midst of all this struggle, there was one thing that, it was, that remained true that remained solid, that remained together. And, you know, coming out of that big time of suffering, that having gone through all the small ones along the way, I, I came out on the other side with this confidence that I didn't have prior. It just wasn't there. And that's what Paul is teaching here in Romans 5. He's saying that when you endure many trials, many that suffering produces this endurance. And as you build this endurance through suffering after suffering after suffering, 
that eventually this endurance develops a, a proven character, a strength of character that wasn't there before. And it is this proven, genuine, authentic character of faith that provides the assurance that we crave. It's how we know. This suffering over time produces endurance. And, and going through this over and over again, in new and, and often intensifying ways, leads us to a point where we can stare at our faith and all that it's been through and all that it's endured, and we can say, this is real. I, I truly believe this. And that this faith, this gospel, has grabbed hold of my heart in such a way that I don't have to wonder anymore. Look at all that it's endured. Look at all that it's suffered and come through. Here I am still holding, holding on. Or more likely, the choir saying, here I am, or he's still holding on to me. Suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces a proven character which shows our faith to be authentic. And lastly, Paul says in this process that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. <coughs> See, I, I believe that one of the deepest fears that, that most Christians have, whether we want to admit it or not, I believe that one of the deepest fears that we as Christians have is that we're typical. That we say that we're Christians, we attend church, we try our best, but at the end of the day, what if we're wrong? What if we're not? What if the faith isn't real? What if it's just something we've inherited from our parents or our grandparents, but it's never actually sunk into us? And so we fear being hypocrites, being Pharisees. But the beauty of this process that God uses is that he uses these, this, these times of suffering to build endurance, which then proves the authenticity of our faith, which overcomes our fears of hypocrisy by showing us the reality of this faith, that it is really there. And this, this proven character in turn is what leads the Christian to have a firm and confident hope, not in ourselves, not in our faith, but in the reality of God working for us and in us to bring us to salvation in Jesus. See, Christian, what you and I have to understand is God's priority is not to take away your problems. His priority for your life today is to make you more like Jesus. And through suffering, through hard times, through tribulation, through affliction, He is purifying and sanctifying you, making you like Jesus. You see, this is where hope comes in. Because Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1, he says that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion in Christ Jesus. That once God has started something in your life, he will not abandon the work halfway down the road. And so if there is even the slightest hint in your life that you are a different person than you were before placing faith in Christ, if there is even a slight, a, a slight taste or whiff of any moral transformation, God has begun or started doing or has been in the process of doing in your life, then this constitutes evidence that you really have been changed by God. 
which means that as I suffer and as I endure, as my faith is tempered and strengthened, that I come out on the other side a different, transformed person, and all of this is by God's grace. And if he gets me through one day of suffering, then I'm never going to get me through the next day, and the next day after that, and the day after that. And that if he's working in me on this one particular area of my life, then I know that when we get to that next area, he's going to be there as well. Suffering instead increases our certainty in the hope of Christ. That hope, like a muscle, will not be strong if it goes unused. But it is in suffering that we must exercise with deliberation and fortitude and confidence. And the constant reaffirmation of hope in the midst of apparently hopeless circumstances leads to a deeper conviction of the reality of this hope. Why, Christian, should you rejoice in suffering? Why should you celebrate the hard days? Not only because suffering is the fire that tempers your faith, but that this is God's process for refining, purifying, and sanctifying you. So that your faith is not only proved authentic, but also that you may abound in it. This is how God gives us assurance that our faith is real, and that our salvation, our, our justification is secure. God wants you to have assurance. He wants you to know that you know that you know. And so to give this to you, to give this assurance to you, He brings you through a process of suffering that builds endurance, that builds character, that builds hope. And through this, He gives us this blessing of security and assurance that our faith is real. Lastly, I told you there were two obstacles our assurance. One is the authenticity of our faith, which this process helps and, and overcomes that obstacle, proving our faith to be authentic. The second obstacle is the reality of God's love. Does God really love me? So in order for us to overcome this obstacle, which we'll, we'll touch on more next week, but in order for us to, do, to see that God really loves us. The, the third and final command that Paul gives is for us to depend upon the Holy Spirit. Depend on the Holy Spirit. For it is through Him that we experience God's love. Look at, look at verse 5 one more time. This is what Paul says. He says, And hope does not put us to shame. So this process has building, been building hope. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So the question is, how, how do we know that God loves us? How do we know for a certain fact that God loves me? And, and, and frankly, Paul gives us the answer. Because he's poured out his love in the Holy Spirit who has been given to us 
You read through the Old Testament. And one reoccurring theme with Israel is that God loves Israel. That he has chosen Israel to be his people, and he, he loves them as his special people. And one of the ways that he proves his love for Israel is by giving them his presence. We see this in the temple. The temple is the defining mark of Israel that sets them apart from all the other nations of the world. Because in this building, in Jerusalem, God resides. He is there, physically. That his presence is enough that it fills this building, and Israel can point to it and say, we are loved by God because he lives with us. He is in this building, and he lives among us. We are his. He is ours. And this is how we know. But the promise, and the, the prophets speak a lot about this, that the day would come, as you read the Old Testament, you see this, the day would come, God promises, where his presence would not reside in a building anymore. But that his spirit, his presence, his spirit would be poured into the hearts of all of his people. And that his presence would, wouldn't be confined to a building, but would be spread across the, the earth in his people. And where his people are, there God is. The presence of God still accomplishes the same thing today as it did for Israel in the Old Testament. Here is the sign that God loves you because he is with you. His presence is with you. And this is what Paul is saying here in Romans 5. He says, we know that God loves us because he has poured out his spirit upon us. He has assured us of his love by being with us, by his how do I know that God loves me? Because he's with me. And I know that he's with me because his spirit dwells within me. But it's a little bit different than it was in the Old Testament. So we don't have this physical building or even this outward sign that we can point to and say, that's what the spirit looks like. We just can't. There's no crazy glowing aura. There's, there's no, not, none of that. You can't look at someone from a physical perspective and say the Spirit of God looks at that person. God is with them. It's not there. There's no test. There's no sign. There's nothing that we can point to and say this proves it. So again, the question continues. How do we know God loves us? Well, because His Spirit is with us. Well, how do we know His Spirit is with us? And there's a, there's a saying. The proof of the pudding is in the eating. Great saying. I love pudding. How do you know it's good pudding? Well, you eat it. And that's, that's essentially what the saying is. That the only way that you can know that a food is good is if you actually take a bite and eat it. You can smell it. You can get a whiff of the, the seasoning and the spices. You can observe it with your eyes. But the only way to know whether or not this plate of food is good is by taking a bite. And so it is with the Spirit. There is an experiential spirit dwelling within God's people that I simply just cannot explain to you. It'd be like trying to have me explain to you what is it that makes honey sweet. I don't know. But you taste it and tell me that it's not. I wish that, that I could give you some concrete test, some less subjective experiential feeling, but the reality is the proof of the pudding is that if 
you want to know that God loves you, if you want to know what it's like to have His Spirit dwell within you, then you just have to try it for yourself. And this is the invite of Scripture. Psalm 34, the psalmist gives us this invite. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in Him. The invite to understand this love of God, to know that God loves you, to feel His presence in you, is to come and taste and see for yourself. Don't take my word for it. Come and see it for yourself. Christian, there's a powerful testimony working to assure you of your salvation and of God's love for you. And this testimony does not reside in the strength of your faith, but it resides in the presence of God dwelling in you. God loves you. And you know that he loves you because he is with you. And he, he is with you because you, you feel him. You experience his closeness. You taste his kindness. You see his goodness. And no one, not even my, I, cannot tell you what that is like. You just have to see it for yourself. The beauty of this is that God speaks to us in our feelings and in our experience. That the gospel is not intellectual head knowledge, that it is not something that we just read and study in a book and come away with with more intelligence and a greater IQ of of Scripture. But that God speaks to us on a heart level, not just a brain level, but on a heart level. So that we feel Him. That we experience Him. That we know Him. Relationally, personally. And it is this internal, subjective, even emotional sensation within the believer that God does indeed love us. This feeling that gives us the assurance that hope will not put us to shame. So, we're running out of time, so let's land the plane here. Paul says in the first four chapters of Romans that we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. This is the, this is the only way to be saved. And God wants you who believe to be assured of this salvation. That he doesn't want you to be guessing as to, as to your eternal destiny. He wants you to have assurance. That you know, that you know, that you know. And so he sends us suffering. And rather than overthrow the blessings of the gospel, this suffering, in whatever form it takes, tempers our faith. Strengthening it, testing it, proving that it's real. Also that we will know that our faith is authentic. And and more than that, that the object of our faith, Jesus himself, is an all-sufficient, all-capable, authentic Savior. But God doesn't stop there. He also gives us the assurance of his love by sending us the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Daily reminding us both of his presence with us, even in the midst of suffering, as well as his love for us. See, suffering may tempt you to believe that God has abandoned you or left you or has withdrawn his love from you. But his spirit dwelling within you proves that none of this is true. So because of this, we can, we must, rejoice in suffering. Because we know that God is working through suffering to make us more like him, to strengthen our faith and to reassure us of his love and of our salvation. The church, rejoice in suffering, knowing that suffering produces Endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And 
hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out for us through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is true. Believe it. Pray with me. Father, teach us to rejoice in suffering, to celebrate the hard days, to know that you are working, and that once you begin working, you do not stop until the work is completed. So we have hope. Teach us, convict us, give us endurance, give us character, give us hope. And if you choose to give us these things through suffering, then so be it. We will rejoice in suffering. Because as the choir has taught us this morning, that when we fear our faith will fail, that when our love grows cold, Christ holds us fast. Then we pray. Amen. As we respond to the preaching of God's word this morning, uh, we will do so by taking communion. Uh, Ron is at the back. If you need the elements, just raise your hand, and he'll bring them to you. Um, uh, a quick word of instruction uh, as, as we come to the table. This table is for believers. It is for those who have faith in Christ for salvation and have been justified by that faith. If you're here this morning and that's not you, maybe this this morning if you're considering this assurance of salvation and you're wondering, I don't know that I know that I know. It's okay. I'm glad you're here. If you don't know that you know that you know, that you've placed faith in Christ, then let me just ask you to put this down, this picture, this photograph, and instead take the real thing. Place faith in Christ. Believe. Endure. Have, it, have His Spirit dwell within you and know that God loves you. Christian, you are here not because you have a strong faith, but because you have a strong Savior. And at this table, we are reminded of just what that Savior has done for us and on our behalf. And so we come to the table first and we see the bread. And in this bread, we are reminded of the cross. And specifically, we are reminded of the cost of our sin. Sin is not just something that we can just toss aside or sweep under the rug. Sin is something that brings death each and every time. But Christ died so you don't have to. He bore up under the weight of the wrath of God for your sake and for mine. The body of Christ broken for you. And while this world is filled with suffering, filled with hardship and heartache and brokenness, the day is coming when our faith will not need to be strengthened through suffering. But it will be as strong and as powerful and as beautiful as ever. Because there we will sit at a table with our Savior at its head. And we will raise up this very same glass. We have one final hymn this morning, an appropriate hymn to sing, Blessed Assurance. Will you stand and sing? It's hymn 426. Will you stand and sing?
commission that Christ himself has given you. And so I invite you to say the great commission aloud with me for our benediction. And Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Go in grace.